0: This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Are dismissed if you're going to class. Well, good morning. Glad to be back up here. Appreciate you guys letting me have a few weeks off. We're going to start our study in the Gospel of John, if you want to start heading there in your Bibles, and as you're turning there, I want to give you a few pieces of, of background about John. John was one of the 12 disciples, and he was probably uh, the youngest, if not one of the youngest. We don't know exactly how, how young he was, but he was probably somewhere in his mid to late teens when he followed Jesus. Um, because history tells us that not only um, did he die in the late uh, 90s of the first century, but, but, but his most famous uh, disciple, Polycarp, wasn't even born until 70 AD. So he was very young when he followed Jesus. But before John uh, started following Jesus, he was, as Ramel Williams would say, co-owner of J&J Fisheries uh, with his brother uh, James. And because they were blue-collar guys, a little rough around the edges, uh, Jesus gave them the nickname of the Sons of Thunder. Uh, Their brain-mouth filter was a little on the loose side. Um, I think it was Luke chapter 9 where Jesus got kicked out of a Samaritan village. And uh, James and John were like, you want us to call down fire on them, Lord? Those kind of guys. But even so, even though they were a little rough around the edges, uh, John, along with his brother James and Peter, um, made them uh, the three leaders of the disciples, if you will. And by leaders, what I mean is, is, is there were several events where Jesus only took a few, uh, those three disciples, like the Mount of Transfiguration, praying in the garden, several other uh, very special events to which those three were the only ones invited. That's a little about John personally. Now, the second thing I want to look at is how John's gospel is different from the other gospels. Um, And and one way that John's gospel is different from the other gospels is rather than giving us a a bunch of rapid-fire stories of Jesus went here, and then he went there, and then he went there, the little ones. What John does is gives us many of these long, extended conversations between Jesus and other people. If you have a red-letter Bible, uh, you can notice just all of the long conversations that are in there uh, with Jesus talking, which brings us to another way that John's gospel is different. And that's sprinkled throughout those long conversations, uh, is John uh, explaining things to you in the moment, Uh, meaning he wants us to feel like we're there with him in the story while he's telling it. Uh, If you'd put up that that first slide, think of it this way. Most of you are familiar with Norman Rockwell, the famous painter, and one of his most famous paintings is that of a family at Thanksgiving. Now, this might look like uh, any other painting, but what what Rockwell did that was very unusual, you could call it he broke the fourth wall. Uh, I want you to look at the bottom right-hand corner of this painting. You see that guy there looking back at you? Rockwell wants you to feel like you're at the table with them, like you're part of the dinner. And that's the, the, the point of that guy you know, looking back at you there. And John's gospel is kind of like that. He sprinkles this kind of a running commentary throughout his gospel uh, to make us feel like we're there with him as he's going through this. For example, just flip to John chapter two and look at verse twenty-one. Jesus has just finished cleansing the temple, you know, driving out the money changers, and and um, they, they're talking about the uh, Jesus saying the, the statement, "Destroy this temple." In verse 19, chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus says, destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it again. The Jews say, that's crazy? It took 46 years to build this. And then John says in verse 21, this little statement, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. And then he says in verse 22, we didn't realize that until after he was raised from the dead. He gives you these little comments. Flip a few more pages to your right, to chapter 6. This is a story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. John gives us another one of these little comments. There's the, the people are out there, Everybody's getting hungry. There's this question about how they're going to feed everybody. And then um, verse 5, it says, Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we going to buy bread so that all these people may eat? And then John tells us in verse 6, He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus is just like, hmm, I wonder where we're going to get some food. Just to see how the disciples would react He does that a lot, these little little comments to tell you what's going on. One last interesting thing about the Gospel of John that's different from the others is uh, the Gospel of John is oftentimes called the Gospel of Misdirection. And and I don't mean misdirection like he's trying to mislead us. I mean there are many conversations in John that have this dual meaning. Uh, Like Nicodemus thought they were talking about physical birth and Jesus is talking about spiritual birth and the, the Samaritan woman at the well thought they were talking about H2O and Jesus is talking about living water. It's, it's kind of like this uh, multiple who's on first kind of conversations. The last thing about John's gospel before we move on is this. It's a good question we should always ask at the beginning of the book. And what's that question is, what's the point? What, what, what is the reason for this book? What's the melodic line that that runs through this gospel and kind of holds it all together? Well, the first answer to that question is is found in John's bookends of the book. If you look at chapter 1, in verse 12, right at the beginning, John says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Then verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So that's the first bookend. Now flip to the end of the Gospel of John, to chapter 20, and verse 30. Chapter 20, verse 30. So bracketing this, this book, if you will, chapter 20, verse 30. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs, ...in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But, verse 31, this is important. These are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God... ...and that by believing, it, by believing you may have life in his name. So, front and back, John actually tells us the reason he wrote this book... ...is so that you could believe in the signs or the miracles that he tells you about Jesus... And then by believing in them, have eternal life. So to that end, we're going to see the word believe or faith or trust in the gospel of John 71 times. It's very clearly the main theme of this book. But we're also going to see a few other words and ideas that are used a lot. For example, we're going to see the word witness or testimony used 38 times. We're going to see the words life or eternal life used 36 times. And we're going to see the word glory or glorify used 35 times. So if we put all those pieces together, I think we could come up with a a melodic line of the Gospel of John that would sound something like that God would be glorified when, because of both the testimony of faithful witnesses and Jesus' miracles, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and thereby find eternal life. Let me say that again. That God would be glorified when, because of both the testimony of faithful witnesses and Jesus' miracles, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and thereby find eternal life. I'll cover that more in the future. If you're a writer, you can come see me afterwards and I'll give it to you. But seeing that the Gospel of John revolves around this idea of believing, I think it brings up an interesting question. Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'd have to admit that we're prone to think of our belief in Jesus, or that our belief that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, we're prone to think of that as an event. In the past, like when we were saved, I believed. To say it another way, we can think that our belief is like a light switch. It's either on or off. And I turned that switch on years ago when I started to believe. And it's not like I can turn that switch on more. It's just believe. Like when Shannon and I got married, I told her very clearly several times that I love her. But I found out through the years that I need to say that more frequently. Once is not enough. Meaning the question I think the Gospel of John is still asking us, even if we're already saved, is this. Do you believe? Do you believe? And if so, why? If you've already received eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, then why do you still need to actively, intentionally, and I would add increasingly, heed the call of John's Gospel to believe? Why do we still need to do that? Well, before we look at that answer and get too far ahead of myself, Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the gift of your word. I thank you for the way that you have revealed yourself so beautifully to us in this this gospel of John. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to reveal yourself. Uh, Give us more of your glory. Show us more of your mercy and your grace that we would believe in you more. And therefore, be brighter lights uh, in this world. Father, it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right. So I know many of you are aware of how good things are going these days. Socially, politically, you know, just awesome, right? You know, like the skyrocketing numbers of, uh, of senseless violence, the uh, global tension you could cut with a knife, and I mean politics, come on. Never been better, right? Did you hear the story a few months ago of a man named Mr. Hauk? And his son, um, in October 2021, Mr. Hauck and his 12-year-old son, they were outside an abortion clinic praying and offering counseling to women that were coming and going. And everything was going fine until one of the volunteers of the clinic came out and began shouting at Mark, Mr. Hauk, And it was just words until the volunteer stopped yelling at Mr. Hauk and started screaming these very vulgar obscenities. It's on tape. You can look it up. The Very vulgar obscenities to his 12-year-old son. So when that happened, Houck stepped in front of his son and told the volunteer to stop, but he just kept ducking around Mr. Hulk and screaming at his 12-year-old son until eventually when his son started crying, Mr. Hulk shoved the man on the ground. At that point, the police were called, and they just told everybody to go home, and that was that. Mr. Houck thought that was the end of the story until almost a year later at, at 5 a.m. on September 23, 2022, 15 to 20 FBI agents showed up to his house Uh, went through the front door and arrested him for violating the FACE FACE Act, which is a federal law that makes it a felony to, quote, use force, the threat of force, or physically obstruct individuals from obtaining or providing reproductive health care services, a.k.a. abortions. So he was charged with a felony. That's awesome. I mean, maybe it's not so global for you. Maybe it's not so you know, national, maybe a close relationship you have is being destroyed by sin and darkness or something is causing problems for you at school or work, whatever the case may be. I say all that to say, doesn't it sometimes feel like darkness is winning? Doesn't it sometimes feel like darkness is winning? Let's look at our passage this morning and see. If John has something to say about that, John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not overcome it. Now, most of you have heard those verses before. No doubt volumes of theology have been written on those short few sentences. I mean, I don't even want to think about how much Calvin wrote on those few verses. It's certainly hundreds of pages. But because there's so much focus on the theology behind these verses, I think there's an important question we can miss. And that is, do you believe that verse 5 is true? Do you believe that the darkness will not overcome the light? Do you believe that the darkness will not overcome the The light. Now it's Sunday morning and you're in church. So you know the right answer to that question. Of course, Grant, you literally just read that out of the Bible. Of course, I believe the darkness will not overcome the light. But why then do we get so upset? Why do we get so anxious when we hear about darkness advancing? If we really believe the darkness will not overcome the light... Why do we spend so much time distressed about what we hear on TV? Why do we spend so much time talking to our friends about the latest thing some hypocritical politician got away with? You see, like I said earlier, I still think we have, have need to heed John's call to believe what he says about Jesus in this gospel. I think we still have need to connect the things we know in our heads with what we believe in our hearts. We know the darkness will not overcome the light in our heads. We know that. That's a fact that we, we comprehend. But John wants us to believe it. He wants us to feel it in our hearts in a way that affects our actions. So this morning, what I want to do is simply give you, out of these first few verses, the three reasons the three reasons why I think John is saying we can truly believe the darkness will not overcome the light. I want you to leave here this morning with a a little bit more belief, having made the long journey from your head to your heart, that the darkness will not overcome the light. And to see those three things, all we're going to do is walk backwards through what John just said, because simply put, John seems to think that verse 5 is the conclusion of verses one through four. So here we go. Reason number one that we can believe the darkness will not overcome the light is in verse four. John says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In other words, John saying the darkness cannot overcome the light, because the light of Christ is life. It's because the light of Christ is is life. What do you think of when you hear the word life? For me, I, the first thing that came to my mind was doc, Dr. Malcolm in the Jurassic Park movies when he said, life will find a way. Our life always finds a way right before life ate something, <laughs> right? That's the first thing I thought of. What did you think of? Maybe it's not, maybe, maybe your thoughts of, of life is not that violent. Maybe you thought of something more like, uh, the intro to one of those nature shows where there's you know, massive herds of animals moving across a plane or birds through the sky or, I don't know, maybe you thought about the newness of, of life or the vitality of life, you know, like the first cry of a baby or the energy of a child. Whatever comes to mind when you think of life, vitality, the expansion of it, that, that purpose of life, the newness of life, whatever you think of when you think of life, it all comes from Jesus Christ. It's not just a, a random result. That freshness of a baby, that's Christ. That's the light of Christ. Now, we've got to answer the question, how does that mean we can believe the darkness will not overcome the light? What does that have to do with anything? Well, brothers and sisters, it's like this. If the light is life, then the darkness is inherently death which means the darkness that causes us so much anxiety is by definition a self-defeating agenda. It's like a snake eating its own tail. Let me me give you a really simple example. What would you find if you left 50 men and 50 women on some remote island and then came back in 100 years? What would you find? Well, you'd find hundreds and hundreds of people. You'd find civilization. You'd find growth in a word You'd come back to that island and find life. But what if you left 50 men and then 50 transgender men on that same island? What would you come back to find after 100 years? You'd find bones. And I say that to say you would find the result of darkness, which is death. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. We can believe in our heart. That darkness cannot overcome the light because that light of Christ is life and the darkness, by definition, is death. It's going to die. It doesn't have a choice. It's literally what it's doing to itself. That's reason number one. Reason number two, we can believe that the darkness will not overcome the light. We find that in verse 3. John says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So if you're in the made category, Jesus or the word, John says, made you. In other words, we can believe that the darkness will not overcome the light. Because the light that, 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 is, that John is talking about here, all things were made through him. That's why we can believe. Now, what does that mean? Why does, why does Jesus being creator mean I can believe that darkness won't overcome the light? Well, you see, it's easy to assume that just because the darkness feels more powerful than us, that it is then therefore more powerful than anyone. It's really easy to think that just because we can't control the darkness that no one can. That's not the case. In fact, I want you to just listen to a couple of examples of how the darkness interacts with the Creator. Remember in the book of Job, when Satan thought God was taking it too easy on Job, what did Satan do? He went and ruined Job's life, right? No. He went and asked God for permission to ruin Job's life. Now, the fact that God gave him permission, that's a whole different sermon. The point is, the point is, we assume that the darkness is out there just running around wreaking havoc on God's plans because we don't have the ability to control it. Brothers and sisters, this isn't true. I mean, even, not even Satan does anything without the Creator's permission. That's one example. What about the story in Matthew chapter 8 where Jesus approaches that man who was possessed by a legion of demons? What, what did the demons say when Jesus walked up? They, they stood up to Jesus and said, defiantly, "Take a hike, Jesus, right?" No. Those demons told as Jesus, they said, "Have you come to torment us before the appointed time?" In other words, what do we see when the Creator approaches darkness? We see fear. We see the darkness in fear, Which means what? What did those demons accidentally let slip that they don't want us to know? In, in their fear, they revealed that, that they know that phrase that has been adopted by so many mothers throughout the centuries, that that, that is true. You know what that phrase is? I brought you into this world, and I can take you out of it. They let it slip that, that, that they know that's true. Listen, time and time again, the Bible When In the Bible, when God pulls back the curtain on darkness, what we see is the darkness is afraid. We see anxiety. We see desperation. Why? Because the darkness knows its end is coming. The darkness knows it's helpless to do anything outside the Creator's permission. And listen, the darkness knows that the Creator is going to uncreate it at some time. In fact, Paul told us in Romans chapter 8 that all creation is groaning, waiting for that day that God has appointed to reveal the sons of God, that day when darkness will be permanently done away with. Darkness knows that day is coming. Brothers and sisters, John wants us to believe it too. He wants us to believe that, that not only will the darkness not overcome the light because the light of Christ is life, But he also wants us to believe the darkness will not overcome the light because the creator of all things, Jesus Christ, has assigned an expiration date to darkness. He has assigned an expiration date to darkness, which brings us to reason number three, which is in verse 1 and 2. John 1. In the beginning was the word, And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In other words, echoing back to the first few verses of Genesis, the third reason John says we can believe that the darkness will not overcome the light is because unlike the darkness, the one who we cling to when things seem bleak The one we cling to when things things seem dark has no beginning and no end because he is God. Unlike the darkness, the one we cling to has no beginning and no end because he is God. And I want you to understand this. I'm not talking about some worthless pagan god like Zeus or Odin or Buddha whose plans can be hampered by their own creation. I'm talking about the Lord of heaven and earth. Just even reading those first two verses, the the question that I want to ask you is, do you see him? Can you picture who John is describing? Can you see the one that, that John is describing standing there before anything was like a conductor preparing to direct an orchestra of creation? Can you see the one who who commanded light to exist before he created the sun. That's who I'm talking about. That's why the light will overcome the darkness. I'm talking about the God who S.M. Lockridge said so perfectly came from nowhere. And the reason he came from nowhere is because there was nowhere for him to come from. And the reason he had to stand on nothing is because there was nowhere for him to stand. But standing on nothing, he reached out where there was nowhere to reach and caught something where there was nothing to catch and hung something on nothing and told it to stay there. And standing on nothing, he took the hammer of his own will and struck the anvil of his omnipotence and sparks flew therefrom and he caught them on the tips of his fingers and flung them out into space and bedecked the heavens with stars, and nobody said a word. The reason nobody said a word is because there was nobody there to say anything. So God said, that's good. Brothers and sisters, that's the God I'm talking about. John says, that's the Jesus he's talking about. John says, that's why you and I can have absolute assurance that the darkness will not overcome the light. Do you believe that? Not up here and here. Do you believe that the darkness will not overcome the light? Because you see, you and I still have need to heed that call to believe. And please, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we don't believe. We do. We do believe. But we still have need to lay hold of more of the hope and the power and more of the assurance that is found in believing more today than we did yesterday and more tomorrow than we do today, that the darkness will not overcome the light because Jesus Christ is who John says he is. Maybe you're thinking, that's great, Grant, I do believe. The darkness will not overcome the light. And I want to believe more that there is an expiration date to this darkness. But even if I do, even if I continue to grow in this, and and even if I do believe that that day is coming, what about now? What do I do until that time that God has appointed for this promise to become a reality? Well, brothers and sisters, the truth is you know you're asking the right question when Scripture gives you a clear answer. And God gave us a clear answer at the end of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, Paul said, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. How do we do that? He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Then Paul goes on to detail that belt of truth that girds our loins when the lies of the darkness begin to intrude in our heart. He talks about the breastplate of righteousness that assures us the darkness can never take away our, our righteousness that we have in Christ. He describes the shoes of the gospel that carry us from place to place with this glorious message and the shield of faith that we shelter behind when the enemy fires his arrows of doubt at us. He describes the helmet of salvation that assures us of everlasting life and the sword of the spirit, which is sort of the spirit, which is the word of God that we, we use to beat the darkness back. Brothers and sisters, that's how we stand until the expiration date of darkness comes. I, I would ask you to develop a reflex that when you feel that doubt building, when you feel that urge to to, to despair, that anxiety, that, that things are falling apart when you feel that. To ask yourself, which part of this armor did I take off and leave on the ground? Am I, am I in despair that the darkness is going to beat me? My helmet of salvation is lying there in the dust. I need to put it back on. Do I feel powerless against them? Do I not have any, any, anything to, to do to push back? I forgot my sword at home. Go get it. Learn to use it. Ask yourselves, what piece of this armor have I taken off that is allowing the darkness to to intrude into my thoughts and my hopes? Because, brothers and sisters, I want to leave you with one last thing regarding that armor, that armor that, that guards us in this darkness. I want to leave you with this I this this truth that this armor ain't new. Unlike the pictures you see. I want you to know that the leather on this armor is supple and broken in. I want you to understand that the padding in this armor is fitted. It's like a comfortable shoe. And 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 unlike the things we see, the pictures, the The steel on this armor is is not shiny and new. No, the steel on this armor is scratched and dull. And the shield, well, it already has a bunch of arrowheads lodged in the front of it. Because this armor has already been used. But but not used in the sense that it's worn out. Not that kind of used. No, I mean used in the sense that it's already been battle-tested. I mean used in the sense that when the darkness threw everything it had at this armor, this armor didn't budge. Because you see, God isn't just telling us to put on any old armor. No, He gave us the armor that's already been worn by Christ. That's the armor He's telling us to put on. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 5 tells us that when we put on the belt of truth we're putting on the same belt as the root of Jesse. And that same verse tells us that when we hold up that shield of faith, we're holding up the same shield as the Lion of Judah. In fact, Isaiah chapter 52 verse 7 and then 59, 17 tell us that God's servant, the Messiah, that's Jesus Christ, that he came with his feet shod with the same shoes that Paul's telling us to put on. And this helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness that Paul speaks of, well, those are the same helmet and breastplate that protected Jesus. And what happened? What happened when the darkness rained down all the evil it could on Jesus Christ? Well, brothers and sisters, at that moment when it seemed like most darkness, when it seemed like, the, like, like most like the darkness might overcome the light, When Jesus hung there on the cross, bleeding for sins he didn't commit. At that moment, this armor proved sufficient. At that moment, this armor stood against the darkness. Because when we, when we see Jesus Christ, the word that John speaks of in verse 1, when we see Him walk out of that grave, God proved not only that we can believe that light wins and darkness loses, not only can we believe that, but that the armor He's giving us to stand until that day, well, that armor works. That armor's reliable. That armor's enough to see us through to that day. Saints of Cedar Springs Church... When we feel that anxiety creeping in, when we watch the news, when we notice that urge building in us to doubt, no matter how dark it gets, we must believe in our hearts that darkness will not overcome the light of Jesus Christ. Because that light is life, darkness is death. And because Jesus, the creator of all things, has put an expiration date on that darkness. And darkness knows it. And because, listen, that Jesus is the great I am. The all-powerful, always existing Yahweh. Who defeated the darkness when he put sin and death to open shame on the cross. That's why we can believe. So can I ask you one more question before I sit down? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Stand with me and let's answer that question together in our response.